I wrote this book to help entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs. That's why there's a lack of miracles and a surplus of marketing details, including buying, advertising, distributing, and running stores, and lots of discussion on how we built a successful business on high wages. In a 1958 partnership with Rexall Drug Company, we started Pronto Markets. After growing it to six stores, I bought out Rexall shares in 1962. And then in 1967, when I had reached 18 Pronto locations, I began the transition of Pronto into Trader Joe's. I resigned at the end of 1988. During those 26 years, our sales grew at a compound rate of 19%. During the same 26 years, our net worth grew at a compound rate of 26%. Furthermore, during the last 13 years of that period, we had no fixed interest-bearing debt, only current liabilities. We went from leverage to the gills in the early days to zero leverage by 1975. Furthermore, we never lost money in a year, and each year was more profitable than the preceding year despite wild swings in income tax rates. Still, judgment can be rendered that I failed, that I fell short of what I should have achieved. We will examine this late in the book, but I hope you'll consider the following, my favorite quote from my favorite book on management. The book is called The Winning Performance, and here's the quote. The general theme in winning corporations is a view of profit and wealth creation as inevitable byproducts of doing other things well. Money is a useful yardstick for measuring quantitative performance and profit and an obligation to investors, but making money as an end in and itself ranks low. Along the way in this book, you'll find the angst of a struggling entrepreneur and the slings and arrows of outrageous good and bad fortune. So here we go to an autumn afternoon in 1965, in a bar where Trader Joe's was not so much born as extruded. All right, so that's from the preface of the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Becoming Trader Joe, How I Did Business My Way and Still Beat the Big Guys. And it was written by the founder of Trader Joe, Joe Colomb. I want to read um, some excerpts from the back cover of the book, actually. And I didn't read the back cover until I already finished reading the book. And I found a lot of what's on the back cover to be accurate based on my reading of the book. Um, so here's some blurbs that I think give us, gives an idea of why this book is uh, worth spending time reading. I really enjoyed it. I had a hard time. It was similar. I had a similar experience a few weeks ago when I read the the Ritz and Escoffier book. Had a really hard time putting it down and, um, and devoured it in just a few days. So here's some blurbs on the back. We should all be inspired to think like Joe. He shares how to get from where you are to where you want to be by thinking outside the box. What a fascinating life. I guess I should pause here. This is um something, normally I read a lot of old books for the podcast. This book just came out. I actually got the book on the day it came out. Um, and Joe passed away last year at 89 years old. Um, so that's why they're, they're speaking of, of him in, um, in past tense. Uh, here's another blurb. Uh, Joe's amazing book on how he built Trader Joe's is a masterclass for entrepreneurs. I definitely agree with that. And all interested in and all people interested in successfully building a business. The story highlights how a thoughtful disruptor uses insights, product knowledge, and courage to rewrite the rules of a very large and established industry. And that's what makes it uh, why I wanted to read the book in general. That that last sentence where it says uh, that he rewrote the rules of a very large and established industry. And I love this idea that even though it's a very ancient industry, I mean one of the oldest industries that ever existed in, in human civilization. 
he can rethink the things that have existed for a very long time. So that was actually fascinating. I'll go, I'll go into a lot more detail about that today. Uh, Joe built Trader Joe's on innovative management, creative marketing, and keen storytelling. This book is a wonderful account of how he did it and, uh, and of entrepreneurial spirit in action. Joe shows readers of all types uh, how moving from an analytical approach to a more creative problem-solving approach can drive innovation. Uh, how finding an affluent niche, these are the reason I'm reading this too, is because I think what he, the lessons he learned applies to any domain, not just uh, selling food to people or selling groceries to people. Uh, how finding an affluent niche of passionate customers can be a better strategy than competing on price and volume. How quite, and this is probably the single most important lesson in the entire book and something we've seen over and over again in the lives of these biographies that we're reading, how questioning all aspects of the way you do business leads to powerful results. Okay, so I want to start at the birth of Trader Joe's. And he says, Trader Joe's got its start in a bar in Los Angeles where a crisis broke out over my head on a Friday afternoon in October 1965. My host, Merritt Addison Jr., had just finished drinking his normal ration of three Gibsons. When he ordered a fourth, I knew something was up. I was 35 years old, president and controlling stockholder of Pronto Markets, a 16-store chain of convenience markets in Los Angeles. Just three years earlier, we, we had hovered on the edge of bankruptcy with the six stores I had bought from the giant Rexel drug company, under whose aegis I had founded Pronto in 1958. After I bought Pronto using extreme leverage, I had no money, Merritt, and Merritt had provided much of the capital, which had helped me fuel our expansion to 16 stores and a recovery to lots of black ink. Merritt wasn't much older than I, but he'd been thrust into the presidency of Rhonda Milk Farms 10 years earlier when his father had suddenly died. Uh, Merritt and I were having our monthly business lunch in because Pronto, as small as it was, had become his largest customer for milk and ice cream. Our business wasn't enough, however, and Rhonda was slowly sinking because Merritt was a rare ethical player in the now wholly corrupt California milk business. So there is all kinds of... The way to think about Job is he's he's definitely a pirate. He's definitely a misfit. He's definitely a rebel. Even the way he... So this applies to not only how he ran his business, but how he writes. This this book is insane. All the crazy... It's an, a very interesting read, um, but he, he, he approaches... The construction of the book to make sure that it's wildly fascinating for the reader. That's why I had a hard time putting it down. But this idea, he goes into to detail about how corrupt, and I didn't know this, that uh, at the time in the 1960s, uh, grocery stores made a lot of their profit on milk. Um, and because there were such large profits, there was a, a large amount of corruptions in the business. So he tells insane stories in the book about how milk companies would hire prostitutes for their customers and then set up cameras, hidden cameras. So they would set their own customers up. They'd hire prostitutes, give them a hotel room, film them having sex with the prostitutes. Then they would keep that footage secret. So if they ever, if their customers ever went and said, hey, we're switching business to this other milk company, they'd be like, oh yeah, no, you're not. Because here I have this video of you with this prostitute. So they're blackmailing their own customers just so they could sell them more milk. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely crazy. But let's go back to this meeting at this bar because this is going to be the birth of Trader Joe's or what what will eventually turn into Trader Joe's. And it's really just a r reminder that, you know, problems are just opportunities and work close. He does not see that at the time, though. He's freaking out. Uh, after drinking the fourth one, he finally got the story out. Painfully, he confessed, Joe, I've sold, I've sold Rhonda and I've sold it to Southland Corporation. Southland, for the uninitiated, is the owner of 7-Eleven Markets. Now, this is a wild fact. He says, I had started Pronto in 1958 
as a copy of 7-Eleven because there were no 7-Elevens in California. So Pronto is the, is going to trade is going to change into Trader Joe's. So you, we could think about the prehistory of Trader Joe's as the fact that Trader Joe's started as an imitation of 7-Eleven. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, so he says there was no 7-Elevens in California at the time. What Merritt was telling me was that A, my source of financing was cut off. And B, a competitor a thousand times greater in wealth was coming to town. And C, they had found a way to avoid California's high labor costs. And this is what I mean about problems are just opportunities and workloads. I knew that we would be crushed by this monster. The convenience store business is 90% real estate and 10% everything else. In real estate, it's the tenant's balance sheet that counts. Between Southland, this giant company with all these assets, and Pronto, that has no assets and is tiny, it would be no contest. Suddenly, suddenly stone sober, I drove home. I got my wife and the kids, and I holed up for two days in a cabin at Lake Arrowhead in California, where I tried to figure out what the hell to do. And that is how Trader Joe's got started. Okay, so at this point in the story, he goes back in time. So we're going to go into the prehistory of Trader Joe's. Uh, he's a young, he just got out of school. He's one of the first people, I, I think he says uh, he got his MBA from Stanford. And I think at the time, I forgot the exact number, but there was like just a couple hundred people in the entire school. So it was not very common to get an MBA at this time. And he gets hired. And we've seen this example over and over again. There's usually someone older, wiser, um, that becomes a mentor of sorts. And he's going to introduce us to, to a very important character and somebody that led him to, to founding Pronto, which obviously is how he becomes the, the Trader Joe. So he says, I was very lucky to get hired for three for $325 a month. I was even luckier in the man who hired me, who put up with me, who encouraged me, and who taught me everything I know about being a CEO, Wayne Bud Fisher Jr. For a while, I wondered how this association, which lasted almost 40 years until his death in 1993, was forged. Until I realized it was simple. This made me laugh. Uh, I laughed out loud. I don't even think he was joking. Um, we were both left-handed. I think that handedness is the most important thing one can know about a person. Dyslexia lurks in the brain of every left-hander, which means we see the world differently, sometimes profitably. At one point, I was accused, and so he would say in his interviews, he would convince people um, to, he would, he would like on, on the sly, try to get them to, he wanted to see them right in front of him so he could, he could slyly see what hand they were. And so he would be heavily, heavily, it's so ridiculous, right? It'd be heavily biased to hire left-handers. And I think it's funny because I'm left-handed. But um, so he says, that's why when I interview people, I try to get them to write something. And this is the part that made me laugh. At one point, I was accused of running a cabal of left-handers at Trader Joe's. And so I laugh, I was laughing at the part. I think he's, I think he's being serious though. The idea that handedness is the most important thing one can know about a person because he does think that, you know, if you are left-handed, you know this, that you do approach. A lot of the things in life are designed for right-handed people. I think it's like a 90-10 split, something like that. Um, so he's saying, listen, we're forced to see the world differently, sometimes profitably. That kind of echoes what we learned a few weeks ago from Paul or Fala, the, the founders of Kinko's, which he was convinced because everybody told him he was stupid, they couldn't read, he couldn't write. And he thought that that forced him to look at the world differently. And that's where he discovered the what he was obvious to him, but not obvious to others, the, the, um, the actual opportunity for Kinko's. Um, I think the book is called Copy This. And it's a, a few episodes back if you haven't uh, got a chance to, to listen or read the book yet. Um, so Bud's going to hire him. There, there's these giant companies. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but they own a lot of drug stores and, um, and small grocery stores and convenience stores. And they're having issues because one of their competitors 
is experimenting and innovating in, in what they're calling self-service retailing. And it's this company called Savon. And Savon's destroying the company that Bud is running. Um, so it says every time one Savon opened, three Owl drugstores closed. Bud hired me to find out why this was happening. And so this is very important that he got this job because uh, he starts to do research. He says, in the course of my research on, alterna- on alternatives for Al, we discovered 7-Eleven stores in Texas. There were none in California. Grocery stores intrigue me. And that's obviously very important because he's going to start Pronto as a copy for 7-Eleven. Pronto is going to morph into Trader Joe's. Okay, so that's extremely important. This is going to echo where David Shaw hires Jeff Bezos uh, to do research about what kind of business makes sense in in context of all this extremely fast growth on the internet. And that's where they come up with the idea for the Everything Store. Uh, so in the meantime, Joe is going to actually quit. He goes to work for Hughes Aircraft, and Bud winds up recruiting him back 18 months with the opportunity to become uh, an owner. So he says 18 months after I quit, Bud called me. He persuaded me. He persuaded Rexall, which is a parent company, to hire me back to clone 7-Eleven. And that's how, at age 27, I became president of Pronto Market. So he's 27, president of Pronto. He starts the book. He's 35, still running Pronto, and had greatly expanded it. So that's what he was doing from the age of 27 to the age of 35. Now, how did he wind up buying Pronto? That was very fascinating. So there's this guy. He says he's famous. I've never heard of him before. I guess he went on to be part of uh, uh, like the government, but his name is Justin Dart. So Justin Dart was the famous president of Rexall, and this is really fascinating. And so, you know, they own a bunch of drug and convenience stores and everything else. Justin gets this idea. He's like, I'm going to buy the company Tupperware, right? And this, the the reason I found this so fascinating is because he did this against the unanimous, his board of directors said, uh, unanimously uh, said, don't do this. So he says, um, Justin Dart bought Tupperware against the unanimous uh, vote of his board of directors. Uh, There's a quote from one of his directors. Tupperware is nothing but a goddamn party formula. Now, here's why Justin was right to listen to his own and follow his own instincts, right? Within a year, Tupperware was generating a third of Rexall's profits. So Rexall's like, or excuse me, Dart's like, okay, well, that means I'm going to, I'm going to get out of this, this crappy business where we're, you know, our stores are closing and not as profitable. I'm going to focus on uh, the part of the business that's generating one third of all of our profits. D- Dart gave the order to liquidate all 1,100 drugstores he owned. And this is why he did it, which is really fascinating to raise cash so he could go into partnership with a gas company and produce all the plastic that he needed for Tupperware. This is a fantastic sentence. What was vertical integration for Tupperware was going to be horizontal disintegration for the Al drug company and Pronto. And this leads us to why am I telling you this whole point? This one sentence, I either had to buy Pronto or find a new job, but that's a big problem. And he says, and this is what I love. I almost feel this is a blasphemous what I'm about to say that entrepreneurs write better books than writers do. <laughs> um, if I have the choice between if let's say there's there's a hypothetical entrepreneur, right? And you can read their autobiography or a biography of them of them. I would always go with autobiography first. That doesn't mean you only read one book. I mean, if you're interested in somebody, you know, read a bunch. You've seen me do that over and over again. And I will continue doing that. I've just ordered another book on David Ogilvy. <laughs> How many books can I read on this guy? I will read every single one I will find, by the way. Um, but I just feel like he doesn't bury the lead. Uh, the book is, you know, only 250 pages. He will tell you this is, hey, pay attention here. This is the most important decision I made. Hey, this is the problem I had. He just lays it out very there's just no fluff, I guess is what I'm saying. Like Entrepreneurs seem to realize, hey, this is the important parts. 
I'm going to 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 I mean part of part of being a successful entrepreneur is or a huge part I would say is, is obviously teaching and communicating with other people right and that shows in the books they write so his point his whole point his whole point here is I mean I'm gonna buy pronto or I'm out of a job but how the hell am I gonna buy pronto I don't have any money so he says there's a huge heading in big bold letters the problem was I didn't have any money he's not making us like he does the work for us to some degree right. We had $4,000 from Alice's, his wife. Uh, we had $4,000 from Alice's savings from her teaching school before she had kids. Uh, we were able to live on my $325 salary. Uh, we sold our little house in which we had equity of $7,000. I borrowed $2,000 from my grandmother and $5,000 from my father. Seven, this is such a remarkable sentence. 17 years later, when I finally sold the company, the cost basis of my total investment was only $25,000. I sold half the stock to my employees at book value, and God bless those people who had such faith in me. But we were still way short when I went to see Tom Dean at Bank of America. I presented my case, and on the spot, he loaned me the money on Allison Mine's personal signature. So first of all, how bad do you really want it? Think about what the crazy thing, this guy is going, he's all in. He Not only is he going deep into debt, but he's willing to sell his house and then personally guarantee the bank loan that he needs to buy pronto. Years later, I asked um, Tom uh, how he'd been so ballsy. It's simple, he replied. Rexall was on pronto's leases, and I figured they wouldn't let you go bankrupt. So he's going to talk about leases. Any, if you, anytime you read a book, uh, I think of Danny Meyer, um, his book, his fantastic book, Setting the Table. He goes into detail about it. The, the, the main advice he would give um, aspiring restaurateurs is, is he has a lot of insights into into leases and what you want to avoid. And uh, we see the same thing with Joe, and I'll, I'll go into more detail about that later. So uh, Tom at Bank of America is like, listen, Rexall's is a huge company. They're, it's not like you can get out of these leases. These are 15, 25, sometimes 30-year agreements. Uh, they're on Pronto's leases. I figured they wouldn't let you go bankrupt. So there I was, the controlling stockholder of seven Pronto markets, living with Alice, who did our accounts payable from home, and two kids in a house we rented for $150 a month. We were leveraged to the gills. Chapter 11 was a possibility. And then this next sentence is fantastic. But I was reading The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman with an implicit concept of multiple solutions to non-convex problems. And that's one of the, another thing that makes reading this book so enjoyable is that he's extremely well-read. Um, so all he's constantly talking about, hey, I read this book. I took this idea. I applied it to my business. The whole thesis behind Founders, obviously. Um, he starts every chapter with quotes from, you know, sometimes their biographies, sometimes their ancient, uh, like, uh, philosophy, literature, uh, all kinds of st- uh, articles he's reading. Uh, it's just really fascinating how he's taking, like, he's developed his own personal curriculum, and then he applies it to his business, and then obviously applies it to the writing of the book. He starts the next chapter where he's going to talk about why, he stole his philosophy on running a business from this book, Guns of August. Um, but he starts the next chapter with this. Well, let me just read you the quote. And I'll tell you why this, this person's important. Uh, if all the facts could be known, idiots could make the decisions. That was Tex Thornton. He's the co-founder of Litton Industries. And he did that quote uh, back in the 1960s. He says, uh, Joe says, this is my favorite of all managerial quotes. If all the facts could be known, idiots could make the decisions. We, Tex Thornton will be familiar to some of you. Because when I did, uh, one of the most important people I discovered through the research of the podcast is Henry Singleton. And I discovered that because I was reading all about, I was reading everything I could get my hands on, a Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And 
they both repeatedly, you could even, when you study the career of Henry Singleton, and I've done a couple of podcasts, I think it was back in the 90s, uh, on him, you could think of Henry Singleton as like a proto-Buffett, right? The way Singleton ran Teledyne, and it, there's a lot of overlap with the way Buffett runs Berkshire, but they, but they would say, hey, if, uh, Buffett said something like, uh, he had the, the, the single best record in American business history, that if you took the 100 best graduates of business schools and you, you combine their record, they still wouldn't be as good as Singleton's. Munger says it's, uh, Munger said in the most succinct way possible why you would study his, his says uh, his returns or his results were utterly ridiculous. So anyway, Singleton winds up working for Tex at Lytton, uh, winds up realizing, hey, I'm not going to go any further. So when he jumps, when he jumps out and founds Teledyne, he winds up having this, this concentrated portfolio. I think at the time, I haven't read the book in a while, but I'm pretty sure he had five investments and 25, I want to say 25 or 40%, something like that was in a single company and it was Lytton Industries. <laughs> and that's also, Lytton is also where um, the company where Claude Shannon made a lot of his returns from as well. Um, so I, I found that, I, I just love how all this stuff winds up tying together. The more of these books we read, the more of these founders we study, we realize they all link together. They all think differently in the same way. Um in fact, what blew my mind was uh, Soul Price, which I would argue is the most uh, influential retailer to ever live. He influenced people like Sam Walton, Jeff Bezos, Jim Sinegal. Uh, Jim Sinegal, actually the founder of Costco, wrote the book. There's only one biography I found on Soul Price, and the foreword is written by Jim Sinegal. And he's like, people would ask him, like, what you? He's like, oh, did you learn something from Soul Price? He's like, no, no, I learned everything from him. He was actually a mentee of Soul Price. Anyways, in this book, Joe talks, he mentioned Soul Price over and over again, that how he was influenced, that he admired what Soul Price was doing. And I don't have the Kindle version of this book, but if I had to guess, I don't think there's another other company mentioned more times in the story of Trader Joe's than Costco. And obviously the, the idea, the very idea from Costco came from Soul Price. So I don't know. That just gets me really excited when I, I see how everybody's constantly borrowing ideas from their predecessors. And then they're not, you know, you can you can see the uh, the sign of an amateur when they denigrate the people that came before them. All the best founders are historians. All the best investors. They don't talk shit about the people that came before them. They admire them. And you see this in, in I, this applies in sports, in business, in investing, in any complex endeavor. Um, and so Joe is, is no different than that. Let me go back to this, though. That was a hell of a tangent. Uh, in 1962, Barbara Tuckman published The Guns of August, an account of the first 90 days of World War I. It is the best book on management and especially mismanagement I'd ever read. The most basic conclusions I drew from her book was that if you adopt a reasonable strategy as opposed to want to waiting for an optimal strategy and stick with it, you'll probably succeed tenacity as an as is as important as brilliance so that's important let me read that actually again so he says the most basic conclusion i drew from her book was that if you adopt a reasonable strategy as opposed to waiting for an optimal strat optimum excuse me strategy and stick with it you'll probably succeed tenacity as is, is as important as brilliance. And while I was reading that, I just remembered something. That whole diatribe I just made about the importance of honoring the predecessors. I, 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 there's a, there's a, a tweet from this investor named Bill Gurley that um, I saw a few weeks ago um, that I saved on my phone that I think it ties that idea a lot better than, I, than the rambling mess I just did, right? So he says, The greats, people like Bob Dylan and Bobby Knight and Danny Meyer, studied and idolized their predecessors. This modern finance world 
where loud voices are disrespecting and dismissing people like Howard Marks and Warren Buffett is unsettling to me. Okay, so let me go back to this part. Um, so now he's quoting, we're still on the same page where he's saying tenacity is important as brilliance. Go with a reasonable strategy that you won't quit instead of an optimal one uh, that you have to sit around and wait for. So he says non-convex problems are puzzles in which there may be several good but not ideal answers, which classical search techniques may wrongly identify as the best one. And now he's going to give us an insight into his thinking at this time. I concluded that I didn't have to find an optimal solution to Pronto's difficulties, just a reasonable one. Trying to find an optimal solution in business is a waste of time. The factors in the equation are changing all the time. But you've got to have something to hang your hat on. The one core value that I chose was our high compensation policies. And this is what I was referencing earlier where he does not bury the lead. This is the most important single business decision I have ever made to pay people well. And so he's going to go into more detail on that later. Uh, what Joe would tell us is like a bit, you, the, your, the wages that you pay, paying the highest wages possible is an asset, not a liability. And I think a lot of businesses look at it you know, as a cost. Um, and he'll go into more reason about why. And he talks about how expensive turnover is. And if you can limit that by paying people more, you get better quality. It's just over and over again. Um, it all ties together. So we'll get there, though. I'm ahead of myself. He's giving us some ideas, though, specific ideas uh, about how he ran Trader Joe's. Um, and I thought this was idea was unique and interesting. E uh, equally important was our practice of giving every full-time employee an interview every six months. At the time he was doing this, to avoid unionization, which was occurring a lot uh, in different industries, uh, especially in Southern California at the time. And he says a, a huge part for employees wanting to unionize is because they have a bunch of unlistened to grievances. So how do you solve the root problem, right? Uh, each employee, including, uh, excuse me, each employee was interviewed, not by the immediate superior, which would be the store manager, but by the manager's superior. The, pr the principal purpose of this program was to vent grievances and address them. I think this program was as important in, as pay in keeping employees with us. Turnover is the most expensive form of labor expense. Good, and this is, he's going to get right to the point of what I was just trying to tell you. Good people pay for their extra productivity. You can't afford to have cheap employees. So he's realizing this. We're in the 1960s, around the same time that David Ogilvy is realizing this. In his books, he says, listen, if, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And Ogilvy's point was that most people are focused on the wrong side of the equation. They're looking at price and not value. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. You should be focused on the other end of or the value that you actually get, not the price you pay. And he talks about the best people are not going to work for what you want to pay them. Uh, moving on, there's another, uh, I would say this echoes Jeff Bezos' idea where he talks about over and over again that there's one-way uh, and two-way door decisions. Uh, one way you have to think long and hard about because they're not easily reversible. Two-way decisions you should be optimizing for speed. Um, and so Joe's saying similar things here. Early in my career, I learned that there are two kinds of decisions, the ones that are easily reversible and the ones that aren't. 15-year leases are the least reversible decisions you can make. That's why I kept absolute control of real estate decisions. Okay, so now we get to one of the most important realizations of his entire career. He's realizing the emperor has no clothes, that grocers don't know anything about the products they sell, and that he can carve out an, an advantage just by knowing more, which seems mind-blowing, right? So it says that, that 30, he's describing himself, that 32-year-old almost bankrupt president of Pronto knew nothing about wine or anything else he sold. 
In this, he was like all grocers of the day, of that day and today. The buyers at the supermarket chains knew nothing about what they sold and they don't want to know. Our first product knowledge breakthrough was Extra Large Eggs, a story that graduate students love to hear. So into my tiny office came the Eggman. He had a problem. Too many extra large AA eggs. He offered them to me at the same cost as large AA eggs, the size that all supermarkets advertised. I would be able to sell extra large, which by state regulations weighed about 12% more than large, for the same price as large. So the, the benefits of the consumers, very straightforward and obvious. You pay the same price, but you get 12% more, okay? And even more importantly, the supermarkets couldn't follow. The supply of extra large simply wasn't great enough, and that is the whole thesis. And it's going to take him close to 20 years of running Trader Joe's to realize that. The power of differentiation, the fact that when you go into Trader Joe's today, they are selling you products that you can't get anywhere else. It took him, there's three different variations of Trader Joe's, and he'll, he has funny names for all of them, and, and we'll go through some of them, and I'll explain why. But the last one's called Mac the Knife, and that is Trader Joe's as it is today, where you have a small, intentionally small store, intentionally reduced hours, selling largely all your own products. Uh, the ads that we began running for these extra large eggs revolutionized pronto markets and they helped to generate the profits that I needed to stay afloat. And they later and later to build the profits I needed to build Trader Joe's. To this day, the promotion of extra large AA eggs is one of the foundations of Trader Joe's merchandising, not just because of the program per se, but because it set me to wondering whether there weren't other discontinuities out there in the supplies of merchandise. Eight years later, we built Trader Joe's on the principle of discontinuity. So let's define, before I finish that paragraph, let's define discontinuity. A sharp difference of characteristics between parts of something. The Pronto Markets chain, at the time of 7-Eleven's arrival, had the highest sales per store of any convenience store chain in America by a factor of three. And this is what he says why. That was thanks to the high wage policy, meaning he's got better people, better locations, a few liquor licenses, and the beginnings of differentiation through product knowledge exemplified by the egg program. Now, where were we going to go with it? We didn't know it yet, but we were well on the road to Trader Joe's. And so now we see his mindset, this, this inner monologue that's happening where he's like, okay, well, pronto, where, why he's going to morph pronto into Trader Joe's. The basic problem is that convenience store retailing is a commodity business that is hard to differentiate. That is the that is the essence of Trader Joe's. Reminds me of a quote from Peter Thiel in the book Zero to One. You want to capture, you want to create and capture lasting value. Don't build an undifferentiated commodity business. That's a quote from Zero to One. We see Joe is saying the same thing here. He's like, what this? There's a, there's going to be a ton of competitors that can come in. Uh, the more convenience stores that are built around me, the the less profit I'm going to build. Like, there's no way for me to actually stand out. I've got to figure out a different concept. What I needed was a good but small opportunity for my good but small company. And that's another way I think of Trader Joe's. He's not into growth for growth's sake. Uh, he prefers small stores, small crews. Um, he'll, talk, he'll go into detail about studying the history of the retail industry in America and realizing they're all going bankrupt because they can't stop building. They're just growing for growth's sake, like cancer. Yes, I could have sold out to 7-Eleven and gone to work for them or somebody else, but the only, this is really important, 
but the only real security lies in having your own business. And this left-hander was well ahead of the curve on that one. And so around the time that he's struggling with this problem, like, what should I do next? This is the next section I'm going to read to you. This is what a way to connect dots here. So he says, the clue, the keystone of the arch of Trader Joe's was a small news item in Scientific American in 1965. In terms of creating my fortune, it is the most important magazine I've ever read. See what I mean about him? He's just not bearing the lead. Pay attention to this part is what he's telling us. The news item said that of all the people in the United States who were qualified to go to college in 1932, only 2% actually did. But by 1964, all the people of, uh, of all the people qualified to go to college, 60% actually did. Uh, the big change was the GI Bill of Rights that went into effect in 1940s. A second news item, so this is how he's connecting everything, right? A second news item from the Wall Street Journal told me that the Boeing 747 would go into service in 1970 and that it would slash the cost of international travel. In pronto markets, we had noticed people that had traveled were far more adventurous in what they were willing to put in their stomachs. Travel is, after all, a form of education. What I saw here, this is how he connects the dots, was a small but growing demographic opportunity in people who were well-educated. 7-Eleven and the whole convenience store genre served the most basic needs of the most mindless demographics with cigarettes, Coca-Cola, Budweiser, candy, bread, and eggs. I saw an opportunity to differentiate ourselves radically from mainstream retailing to mainstream people. He's finding his edge. He's finding his niche. Just how homogenized America had become by 1966 deserves its own chapter. When what I saw in those new, this is his opportunity right here. What I saw in those news stories were the first cracks in the homogenization. And so before I get into why he, he, he found where, where he actually saw his opportunity, this is a description of his edge. As we evolved Trader Joe's, its greatest departure from the norm wasn't its size or its decor. It was our commitment to product knowledge, something which was totally foreign to the mass merchant culture and are turning our, and, and are turning our backs to branded merchandise. So he, at the point, he's not talking about his brand there. He's saying that if you, if you analyze what grocery stores are all doing at the time, they all sell the same thing. They're getting their stuff from Procter & Gamble, from Coca-Cola, uh, from Budweiser, and they're just competing on price. And so you'd pick up like a Sunday newspaper and you'd see all the grocery stores in your area. They would just they would advertise all the same products and they would just say, hey, this is a double coupon or this is 30% off. And Joe saw that as just a race to the dead end. He had no desire to do that. He wanted a product that was vastly different, that was available nowhere else. It just took him two decades to figure that out. And there was a lot of pain and struggle. Uh, so this is where he saw the opportunity. Television was the most powerful advertising medium ever invented. And it began to homogenize American culture to a startling degree. And the way we can think about the world that we live in is the internet has reversed this trend. So now there's all kinds of deep, small but deep niches on all kinds of different things. Um, you know, back then you could watch three TV shows or excuse me, three television networks. Now you have millions of people all over the world producing content. Uh, this is where we were in 1966, a nation whose regional accents, modes of dress and menus were being reduced to a common, what he calls a low denominator. Uh, and he's giving some examples of that. They would uh, they would eat Swanson TV dinners, drink Minute Maid orange juice, uh, use Best Foods mayonnaise and, and drink Folgers coffee. Grocers, and this is his whole point about I guess it's something we've talked about over and over again in the, po the podcast. It's, it can be reduced to, to David Ogilvie's maxim, good, the good ones know more. Grocers didn't need to know anything except what was going to be advertised next on I Love Lucy or Gunsmoke or any other popular TV show of the day. 
And so Joe's whole point is like this homogenization is, is slowly degrading because now you have people that are being more educated, they're traveling more. And even if they're a smaller amount of people, they're going to want they want to, to set themselves apart by not just consuming the same products as everyone else. That's his opportunity. I felt this new, newly educated group that was slowly emerging would be dissatisfied with mass culture. They would want something different. And he talks about this fragmentation. I just said this. Now the internet has fragmented electronic media almost to an infinite extent. Trader Joe's was part of this fragmentation. It created an opportunity for independent-minded people to split off the main track. You might think of Trader Joe's as one of the most, uh, as one of the more esoteric cable channels, and the supermarkets as NBC, uh, NBC, CBS, and ABC. So that's a good metaphor. Okay. Before I go any further, I got to go all the way to the beginning of the book at the table of contents because he has three different. Um, variations of Trader Joe's and he has funny names for them. I mean, this guy's a born marketer. If you've been Trader Joe's, you know that. But um, the first one was Good Time Charlie and his description, Aloha, the first version of Trader Joe's, 1967. And it was the fun leisure party store. Uh, and he talks about the morphing. And again, this is I'm giving you the basics, but this happens over two decades. The second version was Whole Earth Harry. A serious recession forces me to marry the health food store to the party store. And I got whole earth religion in the process. So he talks about becoming a little bit of a hippie, not wanting to grow, um, being worried about climate change and uh, organic food and health food and all that other stuff, not selling cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, the last incarnation of Trader Joe's, which is the one that, that exists today, which is called Mac the Knife. And again, he doesn't tell us why. Good Time Charlie makes sense. Horse Harry makes sense. I have no idea what the hell Mac the Knife means. I Google it. It winds up being some kind of... The only thing that comes up is uh, there was like this pseudonymous or anonymous Apple blogger that, that that was under Mac the Knife. So I don't understand the connection, but he says it started because of the end of fair trade on milk and alcohol in 1977 leads to the third and final version, which I call Mac the Knife. And that is where uh, these small stores, limited hours... I'll go into more differentiation, but essentially, hey, uh, he calls it the Brook Brothers strategy, a chain of retail stores that only sell their own products. So right now we're in the Good Time Charlie section. Um, this is the note of myself is Trader Joe's final form took a while to discover. He says, I'm going to disillusion those dear souls who think that Trader Joe's sprang fully developed from my brain like Athena from the head of Zeus. To continue the metaphor, it was more like an elbow here, a toenail there over a period of 11 years, with an occasional painful delivery of a major hunk of torso. Okay, so we go to another um, another influence of his that came from a book, so more ideas on entrepreneurship from a book, and then the need to sell everybody. Most of my ideas about how to act as an entrepreneur are derived from The Revolt of the Masses by Jose Ortega the greatest Spanish philosopher of the 20th century. I believe this book still offers the clearest explanation of the times in which we live. And I believe it offers a master plan of action for the would-be entrepreneur who usually has no reputation no reputation, and few resources. And so he's going to take an idea directly from uh, the book. And he's saying, essentially, this is what I did my whole career. Ortega offers an explanation of how such a person can get, on, uh, can get an enterprise started. In the context of the career of Julius Caesar... An entrepreneur who started without power, Ortega says, human life by its very nature has to be dedicated to something, an enterprise, glorious or humble, a destiny, illustrious or trivial. 
So in Caesar's case, it's the state. The state begins when groups naturally divided find themselves obliged to live in common. This obligation implies an impelling purpose, a common task which is set before the dispersed group. Before all, the state is a plan of action and a program of collaboration. So those are the two most important terms, a plan of action and a program of collaboration. The men are called upon so that together they may do something. It is pure dynamism, the will to do something in common. Okay, so that's the end of Ortega's words. Now, this is what Joe says about that. Most of my career has been spent selling plans of action and programs of collaboration, whether to Rexall to start up Pronto Markets or Bank of America to buy out Pronto or landlords or vendors many of whom were skeptical, if not hostile, to my plans, and above all, to my employees. If you want to know what differentiates me from most managers, that's it. From the beginning, thanks to Ortega, I've been aware of the need to sell everybody. I took a cue from General Patton, who thought that the greatest danger was not that the enemy would learn his plans, but that his own troops would not. Okay, so that brings us to a main theme of this book that is repeated over and over again. He's going to give us an example here in a minute. He says, as I learned time and time again, success in business often rests on a minute reading of the regulations that impact your business. Now, it's funny he said that because when I read that, I thought of uh, what Kobe Bryant wrote in The Mamba Mentality, uh, which I thought one of it was so clever. Um, and so Kobe says, I made a point of reading the referee's handbook. So think about reading your regulations. It's a referee's handbook, right? One of the rules I gleaned from it was that each referee had a design, designated slot where he is supposed to be on the floor. If the ball, for instance, is in place W, referees X, Y, and Z each have an area of the court assigned to them. When they do that, it creates dead zones, Areas on the floor where they can't see certain things. I learned where those zones were and I took advantage of them. I would get away with holds and travels and all sorts of minor violations simply because I took the time to understand the official's limitations. And so he's going to apply this. What, what Joe will tell us is that a lot of the stuff that he learned about in the, in the final iteration of, of, of Trader Joe's and Mac the Knife uh, he, he he learned those he learned those principles in trying to sell wine first, and then he would apply what he learned in wine to selling food. And so we're in the part where he's going to start getting into wine because he he thinks this is an opportunity well before they do their their own branded food. Again, a close reading of the regulations is a main theme of this book. Why not have a winery? A close reading of the regulations showed that a retailer could own a master's wine grower license. The same kind that, say, he's talking, lists a bunch of uh, wine producers uh, Robert Mondavi owned. We could have gotten a new one for the state for about $300, but we wanted an old one. Uh, so we found one that, uh, that this guy from 1930s decided to sell his license, would have been, which had been issued in 1933, and bought it for $10,000. So why the hell he could buy a new one for $300 or an old one for $10,000? Why is he buying one for $10,000? New master wine grower licenses didn't have the same grandfathered privileges of that 1933 license. With that license, we could legally hold wine tastings of any wine, even if we didn't have our own label on it. We could also legally act as a wholesaler of any wine, and this led to the sales of thousands of cases to some of the best private clubs and restaurants of Los Angeles. 
essentially paying for the, the additional cost, right? The wholesaling privilege was internally valuable to us too. For tax reasons, we operated the stores under eight separate corporations. Technically, these stores could not buy wine as a group. But since one of the, uh, the, one of the markets held the master wine grower license, it could in effect wholesale Trader Joe label wines to the other seven corporations. The light, and he's, he, there's a bunch of different privileges that the older wine licenses have that the new ones don't. He's going to continue to list them. The license also gave us special rights in dealing with California wine growers. For example, when one winery went bankrupt, we could buy the whole inventory and then have it labeled under our own name. Without the license, we could not have bought the inventory directly from them. And so that's an idea that uh, private label wine that they add to private label food later. This is funny. There was a little catch, however. We had to operate a winery. So they have uh, like a 5,000 square foot office building at the time. And it used to be at a factory. And so it says the, the old factory had, had added assorted tool sheds. So we took about 400 square feet of a tool shed and declared it Trader Joe's Winery. We bought a crusher, a stainless steel formation tank, and we bought truckloads of grapes. And the whole office staff pitched in, including their kids, to crush grapes. And so it was during this, uh, all this learning about how to sell wine, he finds his target market. This is the target market that Trader Joe's is built on. Being king of the low price, high value wine trade in California was one of the greatest satisfactions of my career. That's the punchline. His prime market uh, for wine wind up being overeducated and underpaid Californians. And so a lot of the early Trader Joe's would be around areas where there might be a lot of colleges, uh, highly educated population, but the regular middle class uh, workers, though. Um, this I mentioned earlier, growth for the sake of growth still troubles me. It seems unnatural, even perverted. Uh, he prefers small teams, small stores. Uh, at the start of the next chapter, he has a quote from uh, Samuel Johnson, who said in, all the way back in 1759, promise, large promise is the soul of an advertisement. I wrote my note on that page. Sounds like Ogilvy and Hopkins, Claude Hopkins. I did, I think, all the way back on 19, or founders number 170, somewhere in there. And he was probably the greatest copywriter, the most influential copywriter of all time. A lot of the ideas that we learned from Ogilvy, he learned from Hopkins. He readily admits he's, he read his books and, and stole his ideas and used them in his career. And as I turned the page, I, I, I this blew my mind because I had mentioned Ogilvy before turning the page. One of the main drivers of growth at Trader Joe's was this thing. They still still in existence today. It's called Fearless Flyer. It's like the combination of a newsletter, a catalog, and a comic book. Um, and so he, he winds up design, designing it and using Ogilvy's ideas. So let me just read this to you so I don't run over my own point. Uh, it started off as just a way to, to, to report, like uh, to educate people on wine, wines and wine tasting. So he says, to report these results, I designed the Insider Food Report, which began publication in 1970. I deliberately copied the physical layout of consumer reports. The other elements of design are owed to David Ogilvy's Confessions of an Advertising Man, which I read that book and did a podcast on. The numbered paragraphs, the boxes drawn around the articles are all his ideas. I still think his books are the best on advertising that I've ever read, and I recommend them. And we're also going to see he took Ogilvy's ideas because, and Hopkins' ideas because Hopkins discovered the more you tell, the more you sell. And so a lot of people that were not that had no way to track the effectiveness of their advertising would think, okay, people have short attention spans. Let's do just these tiny little ads. 
And what Ogilvy discovered and Hopkins discovered is the more information you give to interested people, the more likely are, they are to sell. And that's what the fearless flyer is. It winds up becoming almost like this, not even the size of a book, but it winds up being multiple pages, I think over 20 pages long. And people would save it. I mean, it's it's a educational tool disguised as an advertisement, I guess is the way to think about it. So he says, we assume that our readers had a thirst for knowledge. Uh, this was 180 degrees opposite from supermarket ads. We emphasized informative advertising, a term bar- borrowed from the famous entrepreneur Paul Hawken, who started publishing the Whole Earth Review in the early 1980s. These informative texts were intended to stress how our products were differentiated from ordinary stuff. And he's going to go into more of like the nuts and bolts of, of how they discovered the, the proper way. He starts off by, by, by sending them to specific people. And he realizes that's the wrong move. Originally, we distributed the Fearless Flyer only in the stores and to a small subscriber list. Doing a mailing to individual addresses, however, was a rotten chore. Americans move about every three years. In 1980, I attended a marketing lecture that taught me that when someone moves, someone just like them is likely to occupy the same address. This proved to be correct. By mailing to addresses rather than individuals, we were able to blanket entire zip codes. Uh, We tremendously expanded the distribution of the Fearless Flyer. He's going to go into more of like his beliefs on advertising. I don't believe in advertising budgets that are based on a percentage of sales. So he's comparing, again, comparing and contrasting how the conclusion he arrived at with how most other companies, uh, uh, the decisions made by most other companies, you figure out the dollar needed to do the job right, and then you go ahead and spend it. As it turned out, the big sales generated by the Fearless Flyer dropped the cost of advertising a percentage of sales after the fact. The expansion of the Fearless Flyer to 20 pages was an important factor in the jump of Trader Joe's sales. So that's the more you tell, the more you sell. Down deep, the Fearless Flyer was an educational medium, and hundreds of customers kept three-ring notebook collections of the issues so they could refer back to the articles. And so his whole point is that, oh, yes, it's advertising what we have in the store, but even if you never came into the store, you still get value. That is so important. Okay, so moving on, he talks about intentionally trying to make Trader Joe's a cult, and this is why. Word of mouth is the most effective advertising of all. I have been known to say that there's no better business to run than a cult. Trader Joe's became a cult of the overeducated and underpaid, partly because we deliberately tried to make it a cult, uh, and partly because we kept the implicit promises with our clientele. There are not many cult retailers who successfully retain their cult status over a long period of time. And that's just a whole point about not optimizing just for size. And this is the, the contrast here. But a, so uh, not many successfully large retailers are going to hold their cult status, right? And part of that is because as you grow, uh, the larger you get, the harder it is to actually keep your promises, your implicit promises to your foundation, like what what created the enthusiastic customers have created uh, the cult to begin with. But across America in every town, there's a particular donut shop, pizza parlor, bakery, bar, etc. that has a cult following of true believers. Beware of ever betraying the true believers. So another thing I learned from Danny Meyer, he's sitting next to, uh, he's complaining about something, in, or maybe, the, yeah, I think he was like venting to, there's a the guy from, I forgot his name, was it Stanley Marcus? There's a guy from the Neiman Marcus retailer in the family, and he, you know, why am I, why am I winging it? I, I can just look up the quote real quick. Um, this is from Danny, Mar- Danny Marcus, <laughs> Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table. He's at a dinner or some or something 
with Stanley Marcus of Lehman Marcus, and he's talking to him. He says, opening this new restaurant might be the worst mistake I've ever made. Stanley set his martini down, looked at me in the eye and said, so you made a mistake. You need to understand something important and listen to me carefully. The road to success is paved with mistakes well handled. His words remained with me throughout the night. I repeated them over and over to myself, and it led to a turning point in the way I approached business. Stanley's lesson reminded me of something that my grandfather Irving Harris had always told me. The definition of business is problems. His philosophy came down to a simple fact of business life. Success lies not in the elimination of problems, but in the art of creative, profitable problem solving. The best companies are those that distinguish themselves by solving problems most effectively. So the way I reduce that for my own self so I can remember is that business is problems and companies are just effective problem solving machines. Great companies are effective problem solving machines, right? So we're seeing the exact same thing. He has an entire chapter. Joe has an entire chapter called Hairballs. And that are just these these random odd problems that businesses throw up from time to time. And his point is like that that is your bread and butter. That is so important. Solving that is why you're successful. All businesses have problems. It's the problems that create the opportunities. If a business is easy, every simple bastard would enter it. My point is that a business person who complains about problems doesn't understand where his bread is coming from. Okay, so now we got to the Mac the Knife part. This is where Trader Joe's becomes Trader Joe's. It's been known as Trader Joe's for like a decade and a half. And they're this part, and they're, they're finally figuring out their formula, right? This part is very important and very, very long. I got uh, highlights that go over multiple, multiple pages. Um, all right, so let's just jump into it. Um, first, he starts this chapter with another quote. Innovation is less an act of intellect than an act of will. I love that. There's a lot of big, bold type in this chapter because we were sculptors taking the first big wax off of a chunk of extremely tough granite. The subtleties can come later. The creation of Mac the Knife was, above all, an act of will by my colleagues and me to survive. And what they're surviving from is this rapid deregulation of his industry. And he says deregulation is always a good thing. But uh, but the reverberations that the, these quick changes in business can actually put you out of business. And so they were worried they were actually going to go under. He says, uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background and then I'm really going to focus on his ideas more than the deregulation part. The retail grocery industry went through the same kind of bends that the airlines suffered in 1981 when they were deregulated or that elect- electric utilities had suffered. Freedom can be an unwelcome thing. We were, quote unquote, protected by price controls on almost 50% of what we sold. So those price controls are going to be removed. He's talking about that's the before. Almost 50% of what we sold actually had price controls. And so that's when he's like, okay, we have the most important strategic decision we made was to become a genuine retailer. And this is fascinating. So this says, he says retail comes from a medieval French verb, retailer, which means to cut into pieces. Tailor comes from the same verb. And so he's saying, how can we actually, can we define what we're doing and how and how we're going to do it? So he says the fundamental job of a retailer is to buy goods whole, cut them into pieces and sell the pieces to the ultimate consumers. This is the most important mental construct I can impart to those of you who want to enter retailing. Most retailers have no idea of the formal meaning of the word. Time and again, I have to remind myself just what my role in society was supposed to be. Many of the policy decisions for a retailer boils down to this. How closely should we stick to the fundamental retailing job? 
and don't worry if it's a little confusing. He's going to explain it, and it's, it's pretty clear. In our cheese, this is funny because I was from the cheese department. In our cheese department, we were literally taking whole wheels of cheese and cutting them into pieces. I took this as an analogy for what we should do with everything we sold. Getting rid of all outside salespeople was corollary to the programs that were to unfold during the next five years. Remember, what does a normal grocery store do? They're just selling other people's products. Yeah, they, they're going to have private label as well, and they'll copy what sells. You know, every other I think every grocery store in the world does that. But his point was like, okay, I don't want. I only he's making a transition for only selling his own products, right? So, so he's talking about get out, get these outside people. No, no outside people in Mac the knife. No outsiders of any sort were going to be permitted in the store. All the work was done by employees. The closest thing to it that I see these days is Costco, which shares many features with Trader Joe's. And so what does he mean about Costco? He's talking about reducing the SKUs, right? So a typical like convenience store will have like 5,000 SKUs, so individual products, right? Um, uh, uh, like these big supermarkets that exist today, they have, I think, like 25 to 30,000. Trader Joe's is going to have no more than 1,500. Um, so he's just getting into... He's getting into the, the, the thought process behind creating what would be a fundamentally different experience for a grocery store. So it talks about before and after. Each store probably had access to 10,000 stock-keeping units, which is a SKU, uh, of which about 3,000 were actually stocked in any given week. But by the time I left in 1989, we were down, uh, we were down between 1,100 and 1,500 SKUs, all of which were delivered through a central distribution system. The managers no longer had any buying discretion. And along the way, not only did we drop a lot of products that our customers would have liked us to sell, even at non-outstanding prices, we stopped all full case discounts and we persistently shortened the hours. And so the reason I'm, this may seem like some random things I'm including in here, but this is why I, I just read that part to you because what he says here, we violated every received wisdom of retailing except one. We delivered great value which is where most retailers fail. If you go back to the, the meeting that Jim Sinegal, the founder of Costco, had with a young Jeff Bezos, they, I think they met at a Starbucks inside of a Barnes & Noble, and that changed the, Jeff's approach and uh, to running Amazon at the time, when I think the only thing they sold, if I remember correctly, were books, DVDs, and music maybe. But anyways, Jim just lays out like how different Costco is. They reduce the amount of SKUs. They have these big weird warehouses. They make most of their money on um, they you know mark everything up across the board, something like 14%. They make all their almost all their profits on just the membership fees. And his point that he told Jeff was that value trumps everything. People will drive out to these far locations in my weird store with no customer uniforms, and you you have to bag your own stuff and put it up in boxes that the stuff was shipped in. It's just a bizarre thing. Because you'll, you'll come in and you'll see a TV that's $400 or $200 cheaper than anywhere else you can get. And so Jim's point is value trumps everything. That is, And then when, when that happens, when a customer comes and realizes, oh my God, the value I'm getting compared to the price I pay is outrageous. What does that do? Human nature is you're going to tell other people about it. That's why Jim doesn't, uh, that's why Costco doesn't advertise. Okay, so let's go back to this. We're not done with this section, though. Uh, there's many pages. He's essentially, everything I'm reading to you is he's just explaining how to be different. He did not just mindlessly open a grocery store, look around, and just copy what everybody else was doing. He realized that's a dead end. Let me think things through for myself, and let me trust my instincts and the fact that I have more product knowledge than my competitors. The good ones know more. Instead of national brands, focus on either Trader Joe's label products or no-label products like nuts and dried fruit. 
This was intended to enable Trader Joe's label to pick up momentum in the stores, and it worked. Carry individual. He's again. He's all he's describing to us here is the different Trader Joe's is saying. I don't care how grocery stores are doing it. This is what I'm going to do it. So we're going to carry individual items as opposed to whole lines. I didn't know this. We wouldn't try to carry a whole line of spices or bag candy or vitamins. Each skew had to justify itself. So normally the salespeople would come in and be like, hey, you know, buy six of this brand, uh, these products that are very similar to each other. It's like, no, we're going to buy one. And in that case, it's, not even, it's their own brand. Uh, depth, this is the punchline, depth of assortment now was of no interest. That's extremely different. Go to a normal grocery store, you'll see 17 different ketchups, 15 different brands of, of uh, paper towels. He's like, no. And Costco does the same thing. He's like, no, you don't need, I don't want to choose between 15 things. Just tell me the best one and I'll buy it. Uh, no fixtures. This is getting into furniture. The store would have most of its merchandise displayed in stacks with very little shelving. This implied a lower skew count. High skew stores need lots of shelves. The average supermarket carries almost uh, 27,000 skews and 30,000 square feet of, of sales area or roughly one skew per square foot. Trader Joe's carried uh, carried one skew per five square feet. Uh, Costco, one of my heroes, carried about one skew per 20 square feet. As much as possible, I wanted products to displayed in the same cartons in which they were shipped by the manufacturers. Another difference, there would be no loss leaders. They have to make a profit on every sale. He was talking about a lot of the, the, the grocery stores would make so much money on milk. And I forgot other the other product he mentioned was that they would they would advertise, bring you in the door, you know, sell you coffee for lose maybe 10 percent on that and make it all up on milk is one example. Uh, above all, we would not carry an item unless we could be outstanding in terms of price and make a profit at that price. So actually, he says we, we'd have to be outstanding on price and uniqueness, or excuse me, price or uniqueness. And we'd have to make a profit at that price. And again, a lot of this came out of the idea that you have to survive deregulation. You're a completely new environment. Essentially, the, the, the rules of the game he was playing was changed overnight. Another thing that he talked about is this concept of discontinuity. And he's like, listen, it's uh, uh, grocery stores will try to sell you, you know, they'll sell you Folgers co coffee. They've been selling it for 10 years. They want to, they, they'll sell it to you for the next 10 years. We're going to offer things if they're a good value to the customer, even if they're temporary. Uh, no effort was, uh, was made to always be in stock. The buying the, uh, the buying from Trader Joe's was as opportunistic as in wine. Some of our great values in this is just clever. Some of our great values in fruit juice were generated by getting the glass containers for cheap. Odd lots of glass containers show up from time to time. Let's say that a prune juice tries an odd shaped container and then drops it. The leftover inventory gets closed out at a bargain price. So we would buy up these odd lots and ship them, say, to our apple juice supplier. Since so much of the cost of fruit juice is in the glass container, we were able to reflect big, big savings in the retail price. So in other words, he's willing to seize temporary opportunities if it delivers value to the customer. And then he summarizes the section on private label products, which is what they're known for today. I wound up wishing we sold nothing else. So it took him a long time. This is the why behind unique products. Products needed to be differentiated in order to avoid direct price comparison. So he, the direct price comparison is the game that his competitors, the large grocery stores are playing. He's like, I'm not going to play that game. I'm just going to have products that are so different that you can't, you can't compare prices. And so he expands on this idea. He says, my years at Pronto Markets convinced me that, that where there is no competition today, there will, be to, there will be tomorrow. The answer was to design a store that has no competition. 
That's why Mac the Knife should not carry any skew in which it was not outstanding. That reminded me of um, Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia, that rebel. Um, he says something in his autobiography, uh, Let My People Go Surfing. And he, he's echoing exactly what Joe was saying here. He says, remember, I'm the kid who couldn't play competitive games. I'd much rather design and sell products so good and unique they have no competition. Yvonne applied that idea to clothing and Joe's applying that idea to groceries. It's the same idea. Uh, this is what I mentioned earlier that if you study the history of your industry, you can avoid just by uh, avoiding being stupid. In this case, don't have too many stores that leads to bankruptcy. My preference is to have a few, as few stores as far apart as possible and make them as high volume as possible. Trader Joe's was, uh, sales were $1,000 per square foot uh, with supermarket was just averaging $570 per square foot. Too many stores, too many irreversible leases, too much geographical saturation was a recurrent theme in the failure of American retail chains in the 20th century. So all he did was, look, why are all these guys going bankrupt? What what are they doing? And let me just avoid that. I want to brag about something here. In 30 years, we never had a layoff of full-time employees. The stability of full-time employment at Trader Joe's was due in part to caution and opening new stores and insisting on high-volume stores. And I would say that's another main theme of the book applied to different uh, different ways. The idea is just make like you can limit if you limit the amount of details and then make every detail perfect. Like you have something that's more manageable. This 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 fetishization of just being bigger and bigger and creating this unwieldy thing that nobody has control over. Eventually, those things will collapse or they'll collapse a lot faster. It's something that's small and within your control. And I think now what Trader has been around for almost 60 years, something like that. I think they only have 500 stores. I mean, not a small company by any means, but they could have grown a lot faster than that. Um, more, more comparing and contrasting here uh, between Trader Joe's and other, um, other grocers, no closeout sales, no coupons and no senior discounts. Giving discounts, and I'll just expand on the no senior discount thing because I thought it was funny, and he quotes Munger, one of my heroes. Giving discounts to people over 60 is to borrow a phrase from Charlie Munger, a type of dementia I can't even classify. Here you have the fastest growing, most affluent part of the population, and you give them a discount? Another main theme of the book, and something we've seen over and over again, down with committees. Businesses, successful businesses are run by formidable individuals. I want to make it quite clear that I called the shots. I rejected management by committee. I think, however, that my regime was somewhat short of despotic. I like the quote about Pierre Monteau, the great conductor of the San Francisco Symphony. And this is the quote. Monteau never tried to get a performance out of an orchestra. He was always giving one with them. Okay, so then something surprising happens. He sells Trader Joe's, and I was really shocked. He sold it, I think, in 1989. And as I'm reading it, there's this giant like a uh, German um, company that owns a bunch of grocery stores all over the world. And I was reading um, this section. I was like, why does this sound so familiar to me? And then I got to the last page, and he says, Sole Price had sold FedMart the previous year to another German capitalist, a sale that ended in an explosive exit by Sole, and the subsequent collapse of FedMart. So I was like, okay, I knew. I was like, I swear some other German company came over and bought an American company, uh, American retailer. I couldn't re remember why. He reminded me it was in Soul Price's book. And so I'm going to go over many pages here. This is going to be one long close. And this part is so, so important. Because he had another career. I think he was like 50-something, 50 58 when he sold. Um, 
he sold his life's work and he regretted it. So I'm not going to bury the punchline. Um, I think this is a very important lesson to learn. And this is something that's come up and, you know, we're almost 200 books into this project. I can't think of a single example where somebody sells their life's work and thought that was a good idea. But I can give you several examples where they sell their life's work and they regret it. So take whatever meaning you want out of that. I'm going to let Joe speak for himself here. And he says, frequently people who see the enormous success of Trader Joe's ask me why I sold. Let's put it this way. I ran, there's this guy named Bernie McDonald who had a risk calculation, uh, uh, a definition of like risk management. And let me actually read the whole thing to you. It says, risk management, you say. Risk management is asking, what am I risking if I say yes? And what am I risking if I say no? So a way to just ask yourself questions. And I guess before I go back into that, the, 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 the addendum in this book, which I'm not going to talk about at all, is like his second career. He was a consultant, uh, took control of some other retail companies, sat on board of directors. He did not write about that period of his life with the love and enthusiasm and passion and intensity that he did about Trader Joe's. And so when you get to the point where he says, yes, I fucked up, I regret this. It's extremely important because he started the book saying, I'm writing this for future entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs. That's how it starts. And at the end, the very last end is, I shouldn't have done this. Okay, so let's go through how that could have possibly happened. Frequently, people who see the enormous success of Trader Joe's ask me why I sold. Let me put it this way. I ran Bernie McDonald's risk calculus. What do I risk if I sell? What do I risk if I don't? That calculus of what do I risk if I don't included interspousal death taxes. So this is, uh, I guess this tax was was repealed uh, under Reagan in the 80s. Uh, so he defines it. The hateful tax that my widow would have had to pay if I died. A tax that could bankrupt a now leaderless company if he died. That calculus included President Carter's threat to end capital gains tax preferences in 1980. A threat that would have increased capital gain taxes for, for me from 33% to 73%. So he sells the business in the 70s. Okay, It was a very rough economic time in American history. And he's going through the... I'm going to list all these other... A lot of it's just like I have a lot of uncertainty and I'm worried about the future. I'm somewhat pessimistic about the future, right? And his point later on is it's like, I wish I had the courage to just go with it. I knew I loved what I did, but I was scared. And that's normal. Like, I'm not like, I think it's important to learn these lessons because humans make irrational decisions even when we're not afraid. We are much more prone to make irrational decisions when we're afraid. And that's his point. Uh, that calculus included the fact that our after-tax proceeds from the sale would be large enough to permit us, meaning his family, to be free of economic worry for the rest of our lives, assuming I didn't do something stupid with the money. It makes sense. That calculus of what do I risk if I sell? So that's if, uh, if I don't sell, right? Now he's talking about what do I risk if I sell? Included the fact that Trader Joe's was my Zen window on the world. I experienced the world mostly through Trader Joe's. That's an advantage of being self-employed. That window can never be as open when you're an employee. Because he's going to work for the company for almost 10 years after he sold, which is also very surprising. Tells you he didn't want to leave. Come on, man. But Joe, but Joe, didn't you think about the risk of not making an even greater fortune if you said yes? So were you worried about the fact that you're, you could have made more money in the future if you just kept it? And his point was, no, I had studied Aristotle's concept of the golden mean. 
the Hellenistic ideal of sophrosyne. I don't know how to pronounce that, which translates to nothing too much. The amount that the, that was offered to me was enough by the nothing too much standard. Essentially saying I'm not like I don't I'm not optimizing just to be the the richest person in the cemetery, right? We have led a very comfortable life ever since. One of the really nice things about my career is that I was never an absentee dad. Workaholic? Yes, but not absentee. What price glory? When is enough enough? So there's a lot of a lot of uh, knowledge in what he's saying, right? The, 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 that's what makes it so difficult. The fact that this is such a, it's such an easy decision to make a mistake on. And that's why I think you see so many smart and accomplished people make the mistake. So he's continuing to give us this inner monologue over this spread over two. What I'm reading to you spread over two chapters. Well, Joe, the first graduate business student, uh, the first first year graduate business school student might ask, what was your extra strategy if it wasn't to sell? Because uh, he initially turned down the he never planned to sell. He, he, he said no multiple times and then he had all this fear. Right. So then what was your extra strategy if it wasn't to sell or let your kids take over the business? This is Joe's answer. I detest the term exit strategy when I hear young entrepreneurs bragging about theirs as if a business is something one builds and casts off. There is an emotional part to businesses, not just financial. He loved Trader Joe's. It was a part of him. It was his soul. I had never planned to exit by the way of sale to outsiders. My personal exit strategy pre-sale was to work in the business as long as I was able to. And this didn't change with the sale because I thought I'd spend the rest of my career reporting to Dieter. Dieter is the guy, his liaison between the German owners, uh, between himself and the German owners, right? And so he's like, even after I sold, I plan on working Trader Joe's for the rest of my life. Things are going to happen. Remember, remember, when you don't own the company, you have no control. And that's so you don't actually have control of your destiny, which he learned. Uh, because I thought I'd spend the rest of my life reporting to Dieter. So I sold. Do I regret it? I'll answer that in the next chapter. And you can see as he sets up the question, you, you're going to know the answer is yes, or he would have just answered it, right? Or if the answer is no, he would just say it. Six years after selling Trader Joe's, there were, bu there were bumps in the road. I got shocking news. Dieter quit. This isn't supposed to happen in Europe. My forecast of spending the rest of my career working with him blew up. And so then you have all this. Remember, he's used to being in charge. And now you have somebody coming in trying to overcheck his decisions. And eventually he's going to get fed up and that's when he leaves the company entirely. I sense that my prerogative of complete control, the prerogative of an, of an entrepreneur posing as an employee was being progressively eroded. And this is when he, learned, when he realizes that he's going to have to leave the company that he loves. And the reason I'm closing on this and the reason I think this is the most important part of the entire book is... You don't want this. You do not want a regret this large, especially towards the end of your life. He cannot create another Trader Joe's. That will never happen. And he still lived for like another close to 40 years after he left Trader Joe's. So he had to live with this regret for a huge part. So I'll just end on this. But do I regret having sold? Yes, I admit it. To my own self, I was not true when I sold. I regret not having the guts to ride out the loss of the tax exemptions, the employee ownership problem, the threat of death taxes, Carter's threat to eliminate capital gains preferences, and all of the other fears, real or phantom, in late 1978. 
I have to admit the truth that I regret having sold Trader Joe's and I've had to pay something for this beyond the loss of my shadow. Thanks for listening. Joe Colum. That was the ending of the book. That is a powerful, powerful ending. Right to the point and then it ends. I can't recommend this book enough. I think it's fantastic. Every entrepreneur should read it. If you want the full story and you want to support the podcast at the same time, you can buy the book using the link that's in the show notes of your podcast player. That is 188 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon.